podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through Song of Ice and Fire one chapter week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brenda Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Paul Clinton. And welcome to the 40th episode of the Nauticast entitled Graduation Day, an analysis of a Game of Thrones John 6, in which Jon Snow is assigned to the Order of the Stewards, gets all pissy and emo and, well, kind of John about it all, before Sam makes him wise up and finally says his Night's Watch vows. Give John a hand, everybody. No, no, Ghost, not that hand. <laughs> yes, indeed. That's good stuff. This episode, as always, is brought to you by our small council, our hand of the King Wolfman, Zach, Grand Maester Timothy W., Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Warden of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whisperers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Jancy O., Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Warden of the North, and Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonstone. Thank you, counselors, very much. Thank you, as always. Our spoiler warning, as we say in all episodes, we'll be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. So we wanted to remind everyone that as a result of us reaching our $3,000 a month target on Patreon... We're going to be doing in two weeks our second ever live stream and first ever chapter by chapter live stream with a Game of Thrones Arya 4, aka the Serial Pharrell chapter, mm-hmm. one of my absolute favorite chapters in this first book, and a set piece that I think everyone in the fandom is really attached to. Yes. So we want to thank our patrons once more for all their support and getting us to that goal, and I uh, hope you guys enjoy that as much as we will. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun doing this kind of live cast thing. And we won't be as drunk as we were when we did our first live cast right after the George R. Martin Fire and Blood event. Well, we might not be. I won't make any promises. Uh, I'm going to go with three quarters as much. Well, we could be two of three sheets of the wind, I think. I think that's appropriate for in, in our cases this time. As opposed to last time, we were like seven, eight, nine, ten sheets of the wind at that point. But yes, it's a going to be a lot of sheets. Entirely yeah, too many sheets. So many sheets are going on here. But yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun to do that episode. And we'll have, I think we'll probably have something like a little kind of informal Q&A maybe before we actually kick off the start of the episode. So yeah, that'll be a lot of fun doing that. And that will be coming your way on February 4th. That is actually my birthday. So make sure you wish me a happy birthday, I guess. I don't know. I'm going to be turning 35. It's going to be very a very exciting year as every year is. Every single one of you better wish Jeff a happy birthday or he's going to be very upset. Just so you know, just so you can read the subtext here. You'll be seeing tears streaming down my cheer, my te- my cheers, down my che- down my cheeks each time no one wishes me a happy birthday. But yes, so that'll be coming your way on February 4th at 8.30 p.m. Uh, we will probably do probably something like a, you know, a half hour or so of Q&A and then we'll actually kick off the main episode itself. So we're lo- really looking forward to talking about that with you guys as we're coming down to the very exciting climax of Game of Thrones here as these last batch of chapters and game are some of the best and some of the most exciting chapters in the book. Oh, yeah. As I've said before, I really vividly remember reading the last third or so of A Game of Thrones the first time through, just gripping the book and like sitting up more on the bed and going, whoa, this is way better than even I thought it was after the first two thirds of the book. It just ramps up in this incredibly addictive way, which really all five books do to a certain extent. But A Game of Thrones does it really memorably that first time through. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, can't wait to cover those chapters with you, sir. Yeah. So... Our question this week comes from Sir Milady Aaron M., who asks, Hi guys, given the most recent teaser released for season 8 of the show, I would love to hear what your theories on the Winterfell Crypts are. Hmm. Do you think their significance will be straightforward, such as a clue down there for Jon to find about his parentage, or a way for Bran to sneak back into Winterfell, or do you think they're going to end up being a source of undead warriors for the Night King, Hmm. or that there's some terrible monster trapped in the lower levels? I've been watching quite a few videos from the community this week, and would love to hear your thoughts. Thanks again for all your good work and for making Mondays great again. (laughs) 
Well, thank you so much for the question, sir, lady. And yes, I've been seeing a bunch of videos on this topic floating around. I think Alt-Shift-X did one yeah. not a long while back. So yeah, it's, it's an eternal question in the fandom. What's up with the Winterfell Crips, both in the books, in the show, in terms of what they mean symbolically, what could be down there literally, what role they're going to play in the future? What do you think, Jeff? Yeah, it's a great question because so much of the Crips of Winterfell are shrouded in mystery, but they also seem to have a lot to do with the identities of the various Starks, as well as Jon Snow, who is going to be the character we'll be covering here in a few minutes. And I I, I don't know. I, there's there's several competing theories, right? You have Rhaegar's Harp, which is was a very popular theory about five or six years ago in the fandom. Uh, you've got the idea that Lyanna's bridal cloak is in there or something like that. You have potential, the potential for dragon eggs to be down there. Um, as we... As we saw in Fire and Blood Volume 1, as well as in The World of Ice and Fire, uh, is it Vermax, right? Is that the one dragon that's Alice's dragon? It is Alice's Vermax, indeed. Yeah. Yep. Ver- Vermax had allegedly laid a clutch of dragon eggs in Winterfell back in the day, uh, which, of course, everyone dismisses as being something that was completely out of the question, which, of course, means it's absolutely is going to happen, and that's exactly what's in the crypts of Winterfell. Uh, or in that, maybe not even the crypts of Winterfell, but in Winterfell itself. So those are the three major things that I've heard. I'm sure there are other things as well. My feeling about the Crypts of Winterfell is that they're great in terms of setting up this sort of identity thing for the Starks. I mean, John has a chap, has, John has a dream in Storm of Swords where he's walking through the Crypts and he feels that he doesn't belong there. Ned, as we talked about last week, is going through the Crypts of Winterfell. He's, his chapter opens that way where Lyanna's crying tears of blood. And you have this constant motif of coming back to the Crypts of Winterfell as well. You know, Bran's final chapter ends in A Game of Thrones with him being in the Crypts of Winterfell after seeing his father down there. Now, what does it mean? What's down there? Is there a monster down there? I don't know. I mean, I, I don't I don't mean to sound dismissive, but I, I don't know that the Crypts of Winterfell are necessarily just a place where you can find an awesome MacGuffin down there that we can be like, oh my gosh, this is down there. This does something or another. I like the, like I said before, I really like the idea that Lyanna's bridal cloak is down there. That would be another source of evidence for Lyanna and Rhaegar being married or something like that. I don't like the idea, let me rephrase, I don't dislike the idea that Rhaegar's harp is down there, but at the same time, I think that some fans have said like that's going to be the way that John's like, oh my goodness, I am R plus L equals myself because Rhaegar's harp is down there, right? (laughs) And but the thing is about is like how many people actually know what Rhaegar's harp looks like at you know at this juncture in the story? Cersei does, Jamie does, but any of the Stark kids? No. Eddard is dead, Catelyn is undead. All the Stark kids didn't even know who Rhaegar was. They were all born either during or after Robert's Rebellion. John, in that case as well, is born at the end of Robert's Rebellion as well, at the Tower of Joy. Clearly, John Connington's going to turn up and say, hey, I know that harp. <laughs> right, that was yeah. my boyfriend Rhaegar's harp. Right, right. And that's that's the thing about like the MacGuffin piece, that if if you see a harp down there, it's it would be more like a nod to readers than something that would impact the characters. And I, and I feel like that's exactly. something that Martin kind of avoids, like these kind of wink, wink, nod, nod things to readers. Like he wants to have these MacGuffin things have an impact on the characters. And John finding a bridal cloak down there would be both a nod to the readers because they'd be like, oh my goodness, John and, Ra- John and Rhaegar. Rhaegar and, and Lyanna actually married and they had a relation, an established relationship and that's where John came from. And I think that would be interesting. And this would also work well with John probably at that point coming to realize that his father was not actually Ned Stark, that his father was Rhaegar and his mother was Lyanna. Um, but yeah, so I think there's there's a whole bunch of things that, could, that we can find on there. 
So yeah, what do you what do you think, Emma? What do you think is down there? I think is what's important that's down the crypts of Winterfell for John and the other characters in the story. I'm extremely fond of the dragon eggs theory. I have to say for a variety of reasons. One, of course, it is just the perfect representation of John's heritage. You couldn't right. ask for a better one than dragon eggs buried beneath Winterfell in the Winterfell crypts. That's just mwah in terms uh-huh. of the symbolism of ice and fire that makes up Jon Snow. It also fits with Stannis' narrative in a way that I think might prove to be important in that, of course, yes. when we talk about Stannis burning Shireen in the books, it's not going to happen on the, the March 2 slash fight for Winterfell because she's not with him, unlike the show. Mm-hmm. So it's going to happen later, likely in the context of the others finally showing up. So the question is, what exactly is this sacrifice going to be an attempt to accomplish in the moment specifically? Is it going to be to create a new Lightbringer if Stannis fails? Is it going to be to try to wake the gargoyles in Winterfell? Or... Yeah. Could it be making good on Melisandre's original promise to bring dragons to life for Stannis from a Storm of Swords? And if that's the case, those eggs turning up might be the perfect opportunity for Melisandre to take advantage of that. So I think that could fit beautifully uh, with that narrative as well. The harp, I think, is a little much, especially since, like, <laughs> John's already met Mance. Like, why would he assume that this particular harp has, has, has meaning for him? As you say, that seems like it'd be more not to the readers than anything else. I like the right. idea of a bridal cloak, because that has some strong religious resonances. I think that could be, be very affecting. I would love it if there was a monster rampaging under Winterfell, just the, <laughs> the, the childlike part of me that wants a monster to be rampaging through everywhere. But I, I don't think it's very likely. I think there are enough threats outside of Winterfell that there doesn't necessarily be, need to be one inside, which is kind of how I feel about the dead within Winterfell literally rising as well to fight for, fight for the White Walkers. It's possible. There's definitely some imagery that suggests it. But... I don't know. It feels, <laughs> it feels like the others are enough of a threat on the outside. They don't necessarily need another one inside the walls, but yeah. we'll, we'll see on that count. And, uh, uh, Sir Lady Aaron mentioned briefly in passing the idea of Bran coming back to Winterfell through the crypts. I do really love that idea yeah. of Bran, Bran finding Gorn's way, the rumored wildling underground passages and coming out to Winterfell through the crypts uh, to surprise everyone inside. Mm-hmm. That would be a delightful scene. I don't know if it's the most realistic scenario in the world. But yeah, so if I had to come down on, you know, one conclusion about what's the deal with the crypts, I would say Vermax's eggs and that discovering them is going to be crucial to both John's story and potentially Stannis's story. Yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm with you there on, on that. So, yeah, so there, there could be a variety of things. I think, again, it's most important to the characters of the Starks and that it represents their identity. And for John specifically, it represents what he feels is his Stark identity rejecting him in some sense or that he feels that he doesn't belong as a Stark because of um, being rejected by the Crips and by the statues in Winterfell. But as we will, we will definitely get into more into that in, in a storm of swords as we talk about that dream and more in John's ever growing sense of identity and search for identity, because this chapter is all about John's new identity as he graduates from his training to become a member of the Night's Watch, but he doesn't graduate as a ranger. Instead, he graduates as a steward. So then here is the synopsis for A Game of Thrones, John 6. And I have to start by paraphrasing the artist of a generation, otherwise known as Vitamin C, which is, as we go on, we remember all the times John had a chapter and as Ned Stark dies we'll be sad but the true threat lies 
North forever. Man, to put some reverb on that shit and get you a new career, brother. Oh, man. Yeah, I'll just have to, yeah, abandon my regular nine to five job and stop this podcast and just go into uh, recording uh, vitamin C covers. I think that's one of my, 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 which of course, that song is, of course, the cover of, of Canon and D, which is a very old song, as some of you guys might know. One nerd. <laughs> anyway, so. So John's all eating some sausage and apples when Sam pops in to let him know that the high command of the Night's Watch has summoned him. He's going to take his vows with the rest of his friends. What an amazing turn of events. John feigns surprise, to which Samuel tells John that he'll be a steward and help Maester Aemon with the library and the birds. But hey, they should probably get over to the set for the ceremony to find out where there'll be YA fiction sorted for the Night's Watch, right guys? <laughs> yeah, they really should. So, John and Sam arrive to the Sept to find Pip, Toad, and Gren already there as Septon Salador, strangely sober for once, waving his censer about, filling the air with Roman Catholic incense. All at once, the high officers of the Night's Watch arrive together. Maester Amon, Sir Alistair Thorne, Elsie Mormont, Lord Stuart Boward Marsh, First Builder Othel Yarwick, and Sir Jeremy Riker, who's in charge of the Rangers, while Benjen Stark is off doing hashtag Benjen things. Mormont stands before the altar and gives the speech the way a lord would, and yeah, I'm just going to read it here. It's going to be a couple paragraphs, so bear with me. <clears throat> you came to us outlaws, poachers, rapers, debtors, killers, and thieves. You came to us children. You came to us alone in chains with neither friends nor honor. Nor honor. You came to us rich, and you came to us poor. Some of you bear the names of proud houses. Others have only bastards' names or no names at all. It makes no matter. All that is past now. On the wall, we are all one house. At evenfall, as the sun sets and we face the gathering night, you shall take your vows. From that moment, you will be a sworn brother of the Night's Watch. Your crimes will be washed away, your debts forgiven. So too, you must wash away your former loyalties, put aside your grudges, forget old wrongs and old loves alike. Here, you begin anew. Good line. A man of the Night's Watch lives his life for the realm, not for a king, nor a lord, nor the honor of his house or that house nor the honor of this house or that house, neither for gold nor glory nor a woman's love, but for the realm and all the people in it. A man of the Night's Watch takes no wife and fathers no sons. Our wife is duty, our mistress is honor, and you are only the sons, and you are the only sons we shall ever know. You have learned the words of the vow. Think carefully before you say them, for once you have taken the black, there is no turning back. The penalty for desertion is death. Mormon asks if anyone wants to leave. See, there's no shame in being a coward, he sort of implies. No one moves, so then everyone decides they can take their vows this evening if they like to. Anyone keep the old gods? John raises, rises and says he does. Would he like to take his vows in front of a heart tree? Yes, he absolutely would. John had the blood of the first men flowing in his veins, the blood of the Starks. Gren whispers that there's no gods at Castle Black, or thinks he's really never seen one. Pip whispers back that Gren wouldn't see a herd of Aurochs until they had trampled him into the snow. I would so grin, sis. I'd see them a long way off. Just, it's really good. Like the Pip and Grin stuff is, is very funny. Um, more of this, please, George. But Mormont has the answer to the question of the gods would. They'd have to go north of the wall to the haunted forest and find a grove of werewood trees. But before all that, someone else wants to go to the werewood trees too. Samuel Tarley. Sure, his family doesn't keep to the old gods, but the faith of the seven has never done anything for him. Maybe the old gods would be different. Besides, his family is the Night's Watch now. Oh, Sam, you make my heart warm inside. Mormont says, yeah, okay, fine, do whatever you want to. But we need to get back to the YA fiction sorting. Bowen Marsh hands Elsie Mormont a piece of paper. 
Halder is going to the stewards, Granoff to the rangers, Albert to the builders, Pipar to the rangers, Samuel to the stewards, Mathar to the rangers, Darian the singing penis to the stewards, Totter to the rangers, and oh yeah, John to the stewards. Wait, 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 wait a goddamn minute. John is going to the stewards? He can't fucking believe it. Did Mormont read it wrong? And then John sees Sir Alistair studying him and he knows that it wasn't a mistake. Mormont instructs the new Knights Watchmen to get with their senior person and get instructions of their roles and responsibilities. Gren and Pip head off with Sir Jeremy Riker while Howder and Albert follow Othel Yarwick. And John? John is still dumbfounded. He looks to Maester Amon, looking blindly towards the light he couldn't see, while Septon Salador arranges the crystals on the altar. Alone now with only Samuel and Darian, Bowen Marsh comes out to let the boys know what they'll be doing. Sam's going to help Maester Amon out with the rookery and library while Chet is being reassigned to the kennels. I'm sure that won't have any consequence for Sam. Darian is off to head off to the Night's Watch to work with passing merchant ships to get better prices for the foodstuffs the merchants sell. And John? Well, Elsie Mormont specifically requested John to be his personal steward. He'll sleep in the chamber below the Elsie's chamber. And what will my duties be? Will I serve the Lord Commander's meals, help him fasten his clothes, and fetch hot water for his bath? Well, yeah, John, that's the sort of job of a fucking steward. Also, John will also run messages, keep fires burning in Mormont's chambers, change his sheets... The huge brother. The huge bro. Do you take me for a servant, John Wines? No, Maester Eamon said from the back of the sept. We took you for a man of the Night's Watch. But perhaps we were wrong in that. Oh, damn. Maester Eamon is letting John know what's what. But John's all teenagery and starts thinking about how he's going to be churning butter and sewing clothes like a girl. He tells Bone and Eamon that he wants to go, and they say, yeah, sure, no one's really forcing you to stay. Yet... So then, Darian the Singing Petus and Samuel the Brave follow John in silence. John looks up to the wall, shining in the sun with melting ice creeping down the sides of it, and then John thinks that he'd like to smash the wall and let the world be damned. He's a very serious teenager, you see, and he has very real emotions, people. Real emotions. John, Sam says. Don't you see what they're doing? Oh yeah, he sees it. He sees that Alistair Thorne wants to shame him. Darian gets all huffy, too, talking about how John thinks he's better than they are. But John gives back that he's a great swordsman, rides better than anyone, and it's so unfair. Fair? The girl was waiting for me naked as the day she was born. She pulled me through the window, and you talk of fair? Darian says, making an alarmingly good point, given that it's coming from Darian. Sam puts in that there's no shame in being a steward, but John's not about to listen to any of that shit. But wait, John, you're going to be with, the, with, you're going to be with Mormont day and night. Sure, you're going to do the shit work, but you're also going to be writing his letters, being with him in meetings, and squiring for him in battle. And you were requested by name, John. I mean, damn, don't get mad, bro. When Sam was a kid, you see, Randall Tarley had taken him to all his meetings at High Garden or wherever he went. But when Dickon came along, Sam didn't really get to attend those meetings anymore. Randall was grooming his heir for leadership. Don't you see, John? He wants to groom you for command. Well, John is flabbergasted at that. He knew that's what Ned did with Rob. Was Sam right? But even if he was, he didn't ask for any of this. None of us are here for the asking, Sam shoots back. Damn. Sam is right, as always. And now John is ashamed. Sam had found the moral courage in himself to understand where he was and what his calling was. But John hadn't. Yet. But now he sees it all a bit more plainly. On the wall, you grew up or you died. John sighs and says, yeah, you're right, Sam. But will you say your vows, John, Sam wonders? He will. The old gods will be expecting them. Late that afternoon, Sam, John, and the boys head through the tunnel out of Castle Black and towards the haunted forest. As they pass through the tunnel, John senses the great weight of the wall pressing down on him as the air grows colder than a tomb. 
They come out the other side of the tunnel, and Sam worries about whether the wildlings might show. But they never come this close to the wall, would they? <laughs> yeah, they won. They won. No, not at all. Never. We're never going to find out about that in Clash of Kings and a Storm of Swords. Anyways, John whistles and Ghost, we haven't heard from him in a minute, comes loping after them. He's going to bring Ghost along with them to the consternation of Bowen Marsh. But in the blink of an eye, Ghost darts off towards the forest, tasting the air. John rides his horse through the forest, thinking that it's similar, yet different to the wolf's wood around Winterfell. The shadows were darker, the sounds were ominous, the trees pressed close together and kept the fading light of the sun from being seen. And it was cold. So cold. Yeah, we're going to be getting to that. Be patient. The Night's Watchmen arrive at the Nine Werewoods at sunset, and we get some terrific imagery of the werewoods. White trees with red hands and a red sap oozing from the wood. It's quite an image, and, and the show does a really good job of showing that in Season 1 and beyond. Sam comments that it's a sacred place and the, gods are, and the old gods are watching. Yes, they are, Sam, very observant. But now we finally get to it. The words of the Night's Watch vows. And I figure that Emmett and I could both say the words together and then rise together as the Amen Brothers of the Night's Watch. You ready, Emmett? Let's do it. All Let's right. Let's do it. Three, two, one. Hear, Hear my, my words, words and, bear and bear witness to my vow. Night, night gathers, and, and now my watch, watch begins. begins. It, it shall not end, end until my, my death. death. I, shall I shall take, take no, no wife. Hold no hold lands. Father, father, no children. father, no children. I shall, I shall wear no crowns and win no glory. I shall, shall live, live and die at my post. I am the sword in the darkness. I am the, I am the watcher on the, on the walls. I am the shield that guards the realms of men. I pledge my life and honor to the Night's Watch for this night and all the nights to come. Very well. We only had a half dozen stumbles or so in there. We did a good job saying our vows. Excellent. Bowen Marsh tells John and Sam that as they notice boys, but now they're going to rise as men of the Night's Watch. Everyone comes around John, Sam and John to offer their congratulations. All except Dywin. Oh, yeah. Time for some minor character love. Dywin is fucking great, and you can't convince me otherwise. He tells everyone that they need to get the fuck back. It's getting dark, and there's something in the smell of the night that he doesn't like. And Dywin is absolutely right, because all at once, Ghost is back. John sees him and compares him to Warwood Tree. White fur and red eyes, like the trees. Oh, and Ghost has something in his mouth. John calls Ghost over, and the direwolf comes to him. Samuel gasps. Gods be good, Dywin muttered. That's a hand. And that, my friends, is the Game of Thrones John 6, a real pace changer, I would say, from the Ned Starkest Doom motif that's been occupying so many of these early, so many of these later Game of Thrones chapters. But it's a chapter that really sits well with me on reread, both in giving us a realistic portrait of teenage angst, oaths, and then, of course, the chapter closer, which shows us that something is very, 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 very wrong here. What do you think, Evan? Yeah, John 6 definitely feels like the odd man out in this part of the book, which is so strongly focused on Ned's actions and reactions down in King's Landing. In fact, the next three chapters in a row are all set in the capital, tracing Ned's downfall through his eyes and those of his daughters. I said regarding Danny 5, in our episode on it we did with LML, that that chapter met the high-octane tone of the King's Landing yes. storyline with the dramatic scene of the... The ritual and Viserys' death, so it, it sort of dovetailed well. John 6 is the opposite case. While there's there's some low-key drama in it regarding John becoming a steward, and of course it ends on that gloriously gory cliffhanger with the hand, <laughs> this chapter is mostly an oasis. It's mm. optimistic, it's atmospheric, it's serene, it's a flat still pond between mist-shrouded mountains. Structurally mm. speaking, John 6's job is to 
cement all the various themes and character conflicts we've been talking about in John's chapters at Castle Black, right before the zombie attack and the news of Ned's downfall and death throw everything into sharp relief. And it does that job well. It's a solid little chapter, even if it's never going to get the attention of the Ned chapters surrounding it. An Oasis is a great way of describing this chapter because it's very low octane in terms of like excitement level. Like you're not like Mm -hmm. waiting for like the next thing to happen. You're like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen now? What's going to happen next? But what I think it does extraordinarily well is that it shows us kind of George at his most optimistic and kind of at his happiest, right? I mean, like like you're saying, like this chapter is a real tone shift from Ned Stark's doomed in King's Landing, but it's also really a really tone shift from Danny's chapter, which is very exciting with the with the Crown of Gold stuff that's happening with Viserys Targaryen. So I think it's a really fantastic chapter. It's a really good chapter, but it's very different. It feels I don't want to say out of place, but it feels so tonally different that you can almost be you almost feel like you could read this chapter from another book because this is one of the interesting things about I think about John's first six chapters is that so much of it is building up um, the first six chapters are all built up to what's going to be happening in the remainder of John's chapters in a Game of Thrones and this chapter ends with the actual plot so to speak of John's arc happening here in, in at Castle Black with the uh, the rise of the other of not the others so the rise of the whites when they get south of the wall and stuff like that which is gonna, we're going to be seeing here in John 7. So I think it's a really good chapter but it's also kind of a really bright optimistic chapter in contrast to what's we've seen so far in Ned Stark and Danny's chapters. Yeah, our last few episodes have been pretty fixated on doom and despair and decay and disillusionment and death and I love I love those things. So we're going to be talking a lot more about them as we go through the series. But I think Martin's putting this in here to act as deliberate direct contrast to those chapters. As you yeah. were saying, there is a more kind of YA feel to this chapter. Mm-hmm. Like the classic moving on up in your little institution, whatever that institution is, whether it's Hogwarts or the school in Ender's Game or you know, whatever, whatever your little institution is that your protagonist is moving up through the ranks. That's this chapter. And it starts off on a very cheery note. Sam is so visibly thrilled to be moving on up and escaping Sir Alistair's tender mercies. And John gets to grin and keep his good deed to himself. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, he's clearly enjoying doing it right, but not not letting Sam know what's going on, which is great. He's not trying to demand credit yeah. and make it all about him, which is a good sign. We get this heart, heartwarming little image of warmth in multiple senses. Sam was, quote, fairly bouncing as they crossed the weed-strewn courtyard. The day was warm and sunny. Rivulets of water trickled down the sides of the wall so the ice seemed to sparkle and shine. Everything <laughs> is shining and warm. Again, this is not generally the imagery we've seen in this particular part of the book, where it's more like flowers covered in blood. That's, that's, right. that's the imagery we've been working with in the last few chapters. Flowers covered in blood and human beings covered in molten gold. But now we get we get the the shining sparkling water. We get the rainbow light on the altar of the sept and bouncing off Mormont's head, which is just a very kind of lovely, flowery image. Even even uh, Celador, as you said, is sober for once. <laughs> so the overall effect, as I said, is this dramatic contrast with the sorrow and bloodshed going down at King's Landing. The seat of power, things are going real terribly there. But here at the end of the world, there's a little bit of contentment, and I think that's important in context of this book. No, I think like we talked at length in previous episodes about how George doesn't write grim, dark fantasy. And I think this is one of these those moments where you can point to when people are like, oh, A Song of Ice and Fire is just this super depressing, sad series of books and George is just writing grim, dark. To take a tell your friend or your former friend at this point to take a look at Game of Thrones' John 6 and be like, no, it's actually not grim, dark. What we're seeing here is legitimate friendship. We're seeing 
and honest friendship between John, Sam, Pip, and Gren, and all the boys that are going on here. I think, I, and I also really think I like your point about it's kind of like YA-ish, in that you have real friendships being established, but you also have this kind of sorting aspect, which we have going on in this chapter here. Um, it, it, strangely enough, it reminds me of when uh, we were sorted, so to speak, for our, our different positions in, in the Army. Uh, there are people sure. You know, there's Gren who's going to the infantry and Pip who's going to the infantry and there's Halder who's going to the engineers and, you know, there's there's Jeff who's going, I ended up going to the infantry sort of thing. So, and it's kind of some, and there was kind of like, a, um, there were a couple folks who were, had put it like, this is kind of getting a little bit way off topic, I apologize, but there were some folks who had put like their top three choices being something and they didn't get their top three choices because they didn't rank as high and ultimately, and they ended up going to someplace else, such as John here going to the stewards when he expected to go into the Rangers, into the infantry, into the front line, so to speak. So I think it's really good. Um, but I think it's really good, too, because we're starting to see we've seen kind of the heart of the Night's Watch mission in previous chapters from John and Tyrion chapters. But here we're getting it presented like the best PR front forward. And that's seen best in Elsie Mormont's monologue about what the Night's Watch actually means. Yeah, there's a certain gamification to the stratification we see here that something that's YA fiction and video games have a lot in common is these skill sets you get bracketed into very early because that's how you form an interesting, coherent team in an RPG and that's how you form an interesting, <laughs> coherent team, team in YA fiction. But the division among those teams is often entirely superficial as with, for example, the little armies formed in Ender's Game to fight against each other where there's, yes. no, there's no reason these people are on different squads. They just have to be in two different squads to have the simulation fight. Or in Harry Potter, you see this kind of superficial distinctions mostly on personality. That, you know, if, if you're hardworking and humble, you go to Hufflepuff. And if you're, you're brave and headstrong and kind of dumb, you go to Gryffindor. But the distinctions we see between the orders of the Night's Watch presented here are not just skill sets. It's also a, a larger thematic question about what it means to be a Night's Watchman, what it means to be a leader, yeah. and the kind of person that, that John wants to be. And I think, yeah, you see those deeper themes coming to the fore in Mormont's monologue. And I really, I love that you read it in, in, in full because it's a really dense little part of the chapter yeah. and bears, I think, some close reading because there's a lot going on. There's a lot that's admirable and a lot that's kind of <laughs> sketchy about what Mormont is saying here in the best of Song of Ice and Fire tradition. So I think starting with the good, Mormont starts by acknowledging the disparity of backgrounds among the new recruits. And that, of course, has been a central topic of these last few John chapters. We've been mm -hmm. talking about Donald Noy's speech to John about how, where all these boys come from. We've been talking about Sam's background and how it was very noble-born but not necessarily protecting him from his own father. Right. We were talking about Chet in, at the end of our episode on John 5 and his kind of background and how that interacts with these other characters. Mormont is acknowledging that and saying, you come from very different places in society. Our society is not equal that brought you here. <laughs> Some of, some of you came to us in chains. Some of you came with no names at all. Some of them with the names of proud houses. He doesn't pretend that's not the case, which is right. good. He just, but he then, he then pivots from that to frame the Night's Watch as a place of redemption in both a personal and social sense. And what I mean by that is that Mormont says, personally speaking, you as individuals, your sins are washed away here. You can be begin anew for the greater good. You might have been thieves or rapists or murderers, but that's, that's gone. You, you can start again. It's the same kind of thing you see with uh, the Quiet Isle in A Feast for Crows, yeah. and the man we all presume to be Sandor Clegane, digging the grave. <laughs> That's what's being offered to him there. But Mormon is also saying that this is a place of social redemption for Westeros, that here, unlike anywhere else, all are equal. This class-stratified continent is transformed into that great quote of Mormon's one great house, which is, 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 is a wonderful sentiment. And that cause Mormont believes in is living for the realm, not for gold or glory or for the partisan gain of one family or another. And 
That's one of the major definitions of nobility running through this series. Yeah. Nobility in the, in the best sense, in the genuine personality sense, is caring more about protecting the realm as a whole rather than this one castle or this one family member or this one, cl- you know, trying to, trying to protect everybody is, is a strong motif and Mormont's expressing it really clearly as he will uh, later in the book. On a more emotional level, he's telling these boys that they are his family now. You are the only sons we shall ever know. He's adopting them. He's trying to be the father to his men, as he will be again under much worse conditions in the Storm of Swords. you got to imagine that when he says, you are the only sons we will ever know, he's got to be thinking about Jorah and how Jorah abandoned Bear Island and kind of broke his dad's heart. And how by saying this, he's kind of saying, I don't, I have no son. Jorah is not my son anymore. I've disowned him. You are my sons instead. Which is just, it's very emotional. As I said in Tyrion 3, G.R. Mormont is just kind of a gruff stereotype in some ways, but I've always found him very emotionally resonant as a character because of stuff like that. He feels like a good father, right? I mean, even though he has kind of a failure of his son in the, in the form of Jorah, you do kind of get the sense that he's he is thinking about Jorah in this moment, like you mentioned. And, you know, at the very end of things, when, when G.R. Mormont is murdered by his men, he tells Sam his last thoughts are, tell my son Jorah, tell him, take the black, my wish, dying mm-hmm. wish. And I think it's really cool that Mormont here in this chapter is is framing the Night's Watch as a extraordinarily noble mission, one that protects the realms of men, and one also where people can find redemption. And I think he's thinking about his son Jorah in A Storm of Swords when he's dying in that sort of same framework of looking at the possibility that Jorah can be redeemed from his sins, from his crimes. And I think it's really cool that it wasn't like his, his final words to Sam and, and Storm weren't bring Jorah back, get him apart, and help him to get regain the, the lordship of yeah. Bear Island. His, That's a great point. It, 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 it's entirely based on the fact that he wants Jorah to re- actually redeem himself from his crimes and from his evils, and the best way you can do that is in the Night's Watch. And, you know, I think the other portion of it, though, is that, you know, as, as much as, you know, the Night's Watch is great and fantastic and everything like that, I mean, there are a number of really terrible bad people here as well, in addition to the good folks here. And, you know, Giorg gives the everyone, not just the good or the bad or the in-betweens, one last chance to leave and get out if they want to. Yeah, he does give them that one final sting in the tail. If none of this convinced you, you may go, none of us will think the less of you. That always that classic line that every mentor figure in sci-fi and fantasy <laughs> gives the one last chance to leave and then no one leaves and then that's his point. That happens in every single story ever. Mm-hmm. But yeah, on the flip side of that... It's that classic thing where acknowledging the disparity of backgrounds doesn't actually change it. Like, that doesn't change the effect of these different backgrounds and the society that these people are coming from. I mean, look at the higher officers who are presiding over this ceremony. Gior Mormont, Jeremy Riker, Owen Marsh, (laughs) Alistair Thorne, Eamon Targaryen, Awful Yarwick. Those are well-known names in Westeros. Mm -hmm. Those are names associated with castles and money. And yes, all those people are competent in their own way. I think you could argue about Alistair Thorne, as we've said before. And there are exceptions to the rule. Cotter Pike worked his way up from bastardy to command Eastwatch. But you, basically what I'm saying is you'd have to be lying to say that the Night's Watch leadership and organization honestly reflects Westeros as one great house. That's just objectively not the case. And, we're, I mean, we're just coming off a chapter, a John chapter, in which, for better or worse, the noble privilege of literacy was so key to Sam getting a post and Chet, the leechman's son, being kicked out of it. Mm-hmm. So even with the best of intentions, the feudal structure is going to get replicated. And how could it not be when Dior Mormont is mentioning debtors and poachers in the same breath as rapists and murderers, as though those are anywhere close to the same thing? Hey, person with student debt, you're equivalent to a rapist and a murderer <laughs> in this world. 
because that's the social and economic structure of Westeros. And even as Jorah Mormont, out of one side of his mouth, is declaring that doesn't exist here, he's reinforcing it unconsciously by saying you are all one worthy class of criminals. That Will, who we saw in the prologue, had been sent to the wall for catching the Malister's own bucks is the equivalent mm-hmm. to, as you say, the, the rapists and murderers we do meet in the Night's Watch. So that's that kind of gets at the problem with the Night's Watch, that you may think of it as this higher calling, this brotherhood like the Kingsguard, but it's also a penal colony. Yeah. And most people here are not by choice. And Mormont is naive to believe that the, the bad siege will be born again just by virtue of him saying so, as he learns to his doom at Crestor's Keep two books from now. The Night's Watch is, is a strange sort of organization in that it has an extraordinarily noble calling historically in both defending the realms of men from the threat of the others, which is a task that's been largely forgotten by this point in the story, but it also has the other dual task too of defending the realms of Westeros and the Seven Kingdoms from the threat of wildling invasion, which is something that has been of more recent memory and historically, as well as something that we're going to be seeing in A Clash of Kings and A Storm of Swords and on into A Dance with Dragons as well. The interesting thing about that, though, is that even though it has this extraordinarily noble mission and something that Giorgio Mormont highlights, he's also highlighting, like you said, that this place is essentially a penal colony. Like, yeah, you can get your your crimes forgiven, but you know you're like going into debt and like killing, you know, Lord Jason Malister's own or Patrick Jason and Patrick Malister's own deer. These aren't actual crimes like and I think you put it really well in, in previous episodes these are these are class crimes more than anything else it's a way to kind of kind of shuffle off your poorer sections of, of society off to the watch off to the wall in order to I don't know I mean for the noble class to maintain continue to maintain their privilege of being in the noble class and being lords and knights of Westeros so yeah it's 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 great you know George Mormont's words are fantastic and fun and you know you get a real sense of, of calling there but at the same time you also kind of have to scratch your head as well and be like well yeah it's great but it's not necessarily for the best for some of these poorer folks in the society that are being kind of shuffled off there without really much of a will of their own I mean you mentioned that one less chance to leave that Mormont gives them and yeah, that's nice, but it doesn't mean much when they'd be stranded in the north with no resources, especially right. for those from southern kingdoms. Like, what if you lived in Old Town, and you've right. been sent to the Night's Watch, and Jeremy Mormont says, go ahead, you can leave. It's like, he's they're Castle Black. They're a continent away from their home. They have no family here, no resources to call them up. What are they supposed to do, walk back? It's not that realistic. It's not just that, but if they walk away from the wall, then their crimes are not forgiven, that they go back to being in the same position that they were again. They can be hunted down by the nobility of Westeros and brought to quote-unquote justice for their crimes. And some people, granted, there are some people that are in the Night's Watch and that will become part of the Night's Watch that really do deserve to have, in a Westerosi context, the hangman's noose or Ned Stark's ice uh, coming down on them. But there are many, like, poachers and debtors who really don't deserve to kind of have quote-unquote Westerosi justice falling down on them. Yeah, see also, I think, Arya at the House of Black and White when she's offered other professions in Bravos by the kindly man who says you could leave and be a courtesan, you could leave and do this or that. Who knows how genuine those offers are, but it's that same kind of like dangling of, of a carrot for you to leave the, this institution. And then then you get into a real kind of strong running theme in the series where Mormont mentions alongside gold and glorious things to be abandoned, he mentions love. And that's that's really a sticking point for you know, most human beings. That's <laughs> certainly too much to ask of someone with a big heart like John. And that gets into a question that we're going to address at length later on in the episode is, while being a duty robot, as Mormont is kind of indicating here, is admirable in the abstract sense, as I was saying, is it realistic or relatable on a human level? 
to ask an individual to do that. And that's, that's, that's a struggle that I don't think there's an easy answer to, but needs to be struggled with more than Mormont is struggling with it. He needs, you know, saying that he said in Tyrion 3, like, oh, it's best if, you know, the young ones don't think about their families. I certainly never think about my family. And it's just like, that's, that's a lie. Right. And that's not something you can reasonably expect of people. I mean, it's, it's also one of the things too, that Mormont is 68 years old at this point. Yeah. John is 14. Sam is 14 or 15. You know, some of these other boys are in their late teens or early 20s. It's fine for an older man whose wife is seemingly already passed on, whose son is in exile, whose sister is ruling Bear Island to be like, yes, I will forsaking love is, is fine for me because I don't really have anyone left around to really kind of give my dole my love out. But for someone like John, who's like just at the cusp of entering into his maturity and who's going to be encountering people like Egret, people like Val, people like Melisandre, people like Daenerys sometime in the future. These are challenges and it's, it's kind of, it's working against biology here, I think more than anything else, but it's also working against the, against the human heart. And I think that's, I think Martin is smart to emphasize love as being something that he needs to, that needs to be abandoned here because it sets up future conflicts for John and for other members of the Night's Watch, like Sam, Sam and Gilly, for instance, is one of these relationships that Sam feels incredibly guilty about, about having sex with, with Gilly aboard the ship bound for Old Town. But the thing is, is that it's completely natural because he's 16, 17 years old at the time. Gilly is probably of a similar age and he has real feelings and real emotions and real heart. And he's got people that he cares about where Mormont, maybe he, I mean, he does care about Jorah as we talked about before, but it's a much more distant type of thing um, because, you know, Jorah is not around these days. His wife is not around. So he can be like, yeah, you know, abandon love. That's fine. But it's doesn't necessarily work out well for these kids. I mean, they're just kids, right? Entering into a lifelong profession of duty. And yeah. And then then the other thing too is, and I feel like I'm getting a little off topic here, but then when we talk about Molestown later on, right, you have a whole Mm -hmm. town which acts in some sort of service to the Night's Watch. But one of the things that acts in most service for is, you know, digging for buried treasure in Molestown. That sort of idea of finding sexual love in, among the, the sex workers in, in, in Molestown. The leadership of the Night's Watch seems, seemingly turns a blind eye to it. And it does kind of like feel like, well, why are you allowing that to happen? But it's in conflict with your vows. And it, it, it's it's a whole mess of, of of things that are going on when you when you start to consider when you start to delve a little bit more deeply into what Mormon is saying to these young men. Molestown is an example of something I was talking about earlier. How the Night's Watch can't really get away from the social structure of Westeros, much as Mormont is pretending they can. Everything comes with them. All the desires and everything that in the society springs up with the cater to those desires is still going to happen. And you haven't created these these perfect duty robots after all. And we see that with the Kingsguard, but. Speaking of human emotions invariably getting in the way of duty, we have John's reaction to being named among the stewards. After Mormont's speech, he you know divvies them all up among the various orders. John, of course, was expecting to be a ranger because he's so strong and fast and trained everyone on swords, and he's Benjamin Stark's nephew. Had no expectation of being a steward, so yeah, it gets it's Harry hoping to be a Gryffindor but being put among the Hufflepuffs, or I guess one of the Weasleys, since Harry wouldn't expect any of them. But so I love that John's reaction to being placed with the stewards. It really just runs the gamut of immaturity, like all, all the whiny behaviors in there. It's not just one example. He, he pins everything on Alice or Thorne immediately mm-hmm. with no evidence, never considering that maybe Mormont was asking for him personally, as Sam points out. He considers himself too above Sam and Daron to be with them, saying, you know, I'm a better sword fighter than any of you guys are. He considers himself above the stewardly duties, as you say, he was making fun of the concept he has to deal with an old man's small clothes and run the water for his bath. And 
There are definitely both class and gender dimensions involved mm-hmm. here. At one level, this is Jon Snow, castle-bred son of a lord, saying, I've never had to do any of that stuff before. Right. Never had to do it for anyone. It's done for me. That's how I've, I've lived my life, regardless of being in the bottom of the totem pole of my family. That was an advantage I had. And he also, you know, compares the doing that work to the work of a girl at one point. So it's also like, this is not tough or manly enough for me. You know, I'm Jon Snow. I'm young and in my prime. I shouldn't be wasting my day, you know, doing laundry and women's work, which... <laughs> I mean, coming back to that after everything we've been talking about with Robert and his destructive addiction to his version of masculinity, I think stands out as like, John, that's not the, that's not the mindset you want to have. <laughs> and then I love that little, he has this little line about his, his rage wanting to lead him to smash the wall. Here's the, here's the line. John's rage was such that he would have smashed it all in an instant and the world be damned. Which there's Rhaegar Targaryen's son right there. <laughs> that, that intense emo drive that, yeah, I'm going to break the whole world because I didn't get the, group I wanted at lunch <laughs> I, I think again Martin's doing it intentionally he's lining up all these bad behaviors for for John so he can immediately learn better but I do love it's 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 the full rainbow of terrible silly emotions but it's good too it's good writing because it's very believable and that's something we've talked about in terms of of John as Martin writes him in a Game of Thrones and that it's extraordinarily believable that this would be the reaction of someone who is like you said Castleborn like you said, someone who has been training in, in training in warfare for all of his his child and, and teenage life, someone who has believed in gender roles as articulated in Westerosi society. Like this is an extraordinarily believable reaction that John would have because it, my read of of John here is that he always saw. Benjamin Stark as what he wanted to be in terms of the Night's Watch. He saw his. Uncle Benjen ranging north of the wall, conducting raids, doing all of the heroic, awesome stuff that John wants to be. And John wants to be the hero of the story. And he doesn't see the heroism in being the steward to the to the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. So I think it's really good writing on Martin's part in that John's reaction is so negative that we we are finally getting a realistic a realistic Jon Snow here. Like in the earlier chapters, he's going above and beyond his duty and saving Sam and ensuring that he gets promoted along with his brothers in, in the Night's Watch when they get promoted so they won't end up being, you know, beaten, killed uh, along the way as he enters further tutelage under Salish the Thorn. But here we're also seeing Jon as as a boy, as, as John the boy, as John reacting against this, what he considers to be an insult, what he considers to be a shame, a shameful thing, which is, crazy, but it's also part and parcel of being a 14-year-old kid, and I think it's good on Martin's part to emphasize that John here is reacting very much to the boy here, and it's not just simply on a heroic arc of being like, oh, well, this is where I want to be because I will do this job so well and just continue to progress in my arc on to being the hero, and this is just one more waypoint on there. It's good that Martin emphasizes that John's react reacts so negatively here in this, this scene. I agree. You could argue, I guess, that John is backsliding because... There's so much this scene has in common with the scene in John 3 where Donald Noy uh, dressed him down, with Sam playing the Donald Noy role this time as, as the person who wakes John up and tells him what's really going on and makes him feel ashamed in both cases, and then John deals with it in both cases. But I think it actually does qualify as a progression because the stakes are changing slightly. Mm-hmm. In John 3 with Donald Noy, it was just about John beating up his fellow recruits and mm-hmm. just being an, an outright asshole, not someone you would trust in any leadership position, whether as a ranger or a steward. <laughs> Probably not someone you might not even want on the Night's Watch if that's the attitude he's going to have. In this case, John has obviously matured quite a bit. He's turned to helping his brothers and giving them what skills he can, learned from Winterfell instead of just using those skills to inflict pain on them. 
but he has to change his mindset about what that was all leading to. As yeah. you say, in his mind, he was going to be Benjamin. And of course, there is emotional layers to that and that he wants to replace slash go find Benjamin at some level, mm-hmm. I'm sure. Because the, the fact that Benjamin isn't here, I think, is making John want to be a ranger only all the more. There's this kind of loss and grief and suspended mourning that's caught up in this for him. So, of course, he reacts very emotionally to not getting this chance and being shunted into a different path. He can only see it as a punishment, and then Sam has to jump in and save the day and counter John kind of point for point. He points out that it wasn't Thorne who made this happen. It was clearly Mormont. Mm-hmm. It was explicitly Mormont who asked for John personally. And that, yes, you, you have to take care of the old man as a person, as we'll see in Clash of Kings when Jor Mormont runs down his very particular wine instructions for John has to be boiled <laughs> just so, this much nutmeg and this much cloves, and no much, not lemon, but lemon in my beer, please. And yes, you have to do those, uh, you have to be the Alfred do his Batman. Yes, you have mm-hmm. to do that. But that goes hand in hand with leadership training because yes. it's, it's, you are going to be in the room. You are going to be, you're going to hear all the orders given, not just the orders as they filter down to the men. You're going to be there when Mormont is puzzling over his options mm-hmm. and he is getting input and then talking about people behind their back and you get to take all that in. And that's what actually running the Night's Watch is. It's not just swinging the shining sword on dangerous mm-hmm. missions beyond the wall. I mean, that's part of it. That's yeah, definitely sure. in there. But that's not the whole package of, of being a leader, of being a hero, of being a good Night's Watchman. And Sam is being a really good friend here because he's he's even going so far as to dredge up his painful memories of being abandoned by his own father in order to make this point to John. Like, that's got to be hard for Sam to admit once again to John, hey, this is what happened when my father decided he didn't want me in charge. Right. So you're getting the in charge position. So maybe don't complain about it too much. Hmm. He's, He's reminding John that they're not here for fun. They're not here for catharsis. They're here in many cases, as we said, because they have no choice. And at best, they're here to to do a job that is... Not necessarily cathartic. I mean, being a, right. being a watcher on the walls is not designed to get your blood pumping hot. No pun intended. And John has to recognize that if he's going to move on up. And as with Donald Noy's speech in John 3, to John's credit, John gets this at a deep level. As soon as Sam reminds him that most of them are not here by choice, suddenly John Snow was ashamed. Again, the right. same thing that happened in John 3. He listens and he gets it, which is you know, what makes John a quality protagonist. He's not flawless. He doesn't come into a Game of Thrones just fully formed with all his personality traits, just how you want him. But when he's called out in his mistakes, he does take it seriously, which is, I think, difficult for pretty much everybody. (laughs) Some of us are better at it than others. Some of us do better on some days than others, but no one is perfect at dealing with criticism. And I think it proves that John was worthy of this selection after all. Because for me, what I think is happening in the background is that, okay, Amon clearly went to Mormont to intervene on Sam's behalf, as yep. John was asking him to do at the end of John 5, because Eamon has to go over Alistair Thorne's head. Really, the only person he can make do that is Mormont. So what I think might happen is, might have happened, is that Mormont is picking John in part because he was impressed by that, by John intervening to save Sam and having this recognition that Sam could contribute. The reason I think that is because Eamon says to John when John is whining about being a steward, Eamon says, we thought you were a man of the Night's Watch, but perhaps we were wrong hmm. in that. We, which suggests that it's not just him, and that Mormont is in on this. So John's initial reaction is suggesting that, oh, maybe he's not worthy of that. Maybe he's, he can't see his, vision, his his place in the leadership, but then he proves that indeed he can. And he's only realizing that because Sam intervened and Sam was only there because John helped him out. So I think you see this great symbiosis between John and Sam forming here of, of friends helping each other and forming the best Night's Watch they could be because it, it needs both of them. It, it really does need both of, of those types. And... It's one of those things also to kind of expand it out to kind of a more greater point about the series that others have made in that, you know, in A Song of Ice and Fire, 
women's work, so to speak, like sewing clothes and things like that of, of that nature is looked down upon as like not heroic necessarily, but sewing clothes keeps you warm in the winter and helps you to survive yep. years long winters. Yep. Making, yep. making food and knowing how to make food and making food correctly ensures your survival when you're north of the wall in extraordinarily dangerous territory as John is going to find himself in a clash of kings. These are all things that are extraordinarily relevant to service in the Night's Watch. They they say in the in the military they say something to the effect of for every person who is on the front line, for every person who is with a rifle in hand, you know, in, engaging the enemy, there is ten people behind the, that soldier supporting him in battle. So you need that that long lasting support structure to in order to ensure that the warfighter is able to survive and and be successful on the battlefield. And you know, the steward role is extremely, extremely, extremely important. And the the fact that John doesn't see it at first that he's being elevated to a large, to a more prestigious steward role than than either of his peers in Darian and in Sam. Uh, and but then later realizes shows that he's he can he can make character growth and make character growth in, in a way that's that's interesting and allows him to kind of see beyond himself. And I think it's really good about John. Like you said, he's he's a great fantasy protagonist in that he's able to learn, adapt, and get better than what he was. But then we get then to one of my favorite scenes in this chapter, which is John heading out into the wild, where John is going to go out to that grove of weirwood trees. And it's one of my favorite sort of scenes. And it's something we're going to see again in A Dance of Dragons and one of my probably top five John chapters, uh, John 7, where he takes the new recruits out to the weirwood grove out there. Right, and here right. We're, yeah, here we're seeing it here for the first time. And I think it's a great introduction to that weirwood grove and to that scene we're about to talk about. It's our first time beyond the wall since the prologue. Right. So there's an appropriate, I mean, unless you count Bran's dreams, but that's kind of cheating. <laughs> so in terms of people on the ground in reality, this is our first time beyond the wall since the prologue. And so there's an appropriately spooky atmosphere. Sam suddenly gets frightened again as they get outside. and But there's some... I think ambiguity and duality at work in terms of how Martin describes this setting. On the one hand, John actually feels relief once he gets north of the wall. He says that the wall felt like this oppressive force kind of bearing down on him and getting north back out into the wild was actually, oh, it was calming. It was nice. So it's mm-hmm. not not just fear up there. And he has this interesting comment that the the instinctive fear that Sam and the others feel north of the wall, perhaps it was all in the knowing. Which suggests it's almost kind of a placebo effect. You feel afraid north of the wall just because you know you're north of the wall, so you're supposed to be afraid. Yeah. Even though that doesn't necessarily mean that somebody's watching you or someone's coming to kill you. So maybe there's some suggestion going on there that life north of the wall isn't that different. On the other hand, <laughs> the Weirwood Grove is genuinely unusual, as, as John points out. Like nine together, you never see anything like this south right. of the wall. So the, there is the, life is different up here. And, of course, Ghost does turn up with a zombie hand at chapter's <laughs> end. So it's not all just in the knowing. They, there, there is genuine, genuinely weird magic fantasy elements up here that don't exist elsewhere. And Ghost is one of them. As John says, Ghost is, quote, like the trees. Mm-hmm. So there is this sense that as much as, obviously, the North keeps to the old ways and has the weirwoods and the gods of the first men, there is a sense that the gods and the others rule up here in a way they just don't south of the wall. Yeah, they they really do, and and I think it's it's Barn does a good job of introducing those atmospherics in there, the cold, the uncertainty, the kind of fear of the unknown that we see there, and I think it's really interesting too that John contrasts the the haunted forest with the Wolfswood that he grew up around, mm-hmm. and that it's kind of similar but not similar as well, and there's that sense that 
there is something unusual about the haunted forest. I mean, it's like one of, like they talk about the dread fort. Like it's obviously bad because the name is bad. The haunted forest is obviously bad because it's named the fucking haunted forest. So it, it is a, a a place of um, uncertainty for John, but it's also a place of kind of a little bit of creeping dread that we we start to experience when John's coming out there. Another thing I think is interesting too is that we're starting to see hints of John's warging of Ghost here and that he's able to kind of feel out and sense out what Ghost is feeling and doing in a way that's subtly unnatural and that he's realizing that, ah, he can taste the air. That sort of, uh, that phrase came up in yeah. this chapter. That's, that is a yeah, particular turn of phrase, I agree. Yeah, it's one of those particular turns of phrases that indicates that John is going a little bit beyond simply imagining what his direwolf is experiencing and instead kind of experiencing what ghost is experiencing. I think it's a really, really good um, introduction to John's working ability, which is very subtle throughout all of the song of ice and fire until, well, until it'll become absolutely not subtle when we get to the winds of winter and we likely get John chapters in ghost. Agreed. That's going to be amazing. And yeah, there's, there's the mixture of magical elements and grounded elements that I think is very important here. There's sometimes a tendency in the Phantom to seize on lines like perhaps it was all in the knowing and say that's really it's it's not different up here at all, or that you know the stories in the night fort are just stories, or that the Heron Hall curse isn't real. And I think Martin, while he certainly takes a jaundiced eye to those fantasy elements and is incorporating them in a very grounded context, the, the elements themselves still come through and the, the the magic is still present. It just doesn't boil down to mana classes you can necessarily access and mm-hmm. use as I was saying like an RPG character like I, I there is I think there is definitely something at work in Heron Hall just from the magical elements that work in this universe if you build a castle partially out of a weirwood and then it gets set on dragon fire something's gonna happen as a result <laughs> of that those are just the core magical elements of this universe of course something weird is gonna occur when you put all that together but it's not something that you summon an exorcist to defeat. You don't need an old priest and a young priest. You don't get the Ghostbusters in there. <laughs> Arya doesn't see a specter appear in the night. It's just something that subtly influences people's arcs. And you might not even notice it first until you go, oh, wait, they're all dying <laughs> one by one. And that's I think that's Martin deploying the trope in a more kind of interesting way than yeah. he is necessarily destroying it. But that's that's a that's a long running topic which we'll get into as we go as as magic becomes more prominent in the series because I like that combination of the magical element being real but also stuff undercutting it at the same time I think is very key to the series for sure. Oh yeah, we'll be taking a particularly close look at as as Martin starts to introduce those magic elements more and more into the story, but especially into John's story. But one of the interesting ways that magic is going to be introduced. And kind of the symbolism that we're going to be talking about much more in depth as we progress in A Song of Ice and Fire is in the words of the Night's Watch Vows, which you guys all heard both Emma and I do amazing work on in doing for our, the synopsis of it. And I think like it, the Night's Watch Vows, they are working to bind these brothers together, but they also have a lot of symbolism and foreshadowing for what it, it happened in the past that has been somewhat forgotten, as well as foreshadowing the things that are going to occur in the future for these characters, especially John here. Absolutely. There's so much in these vows you can connect to the Long Night, to the others, to Azora High and Lightbringer, as well as re- real world things that Martin is alluding to. And it's, it's worth breaking down, I think, just line by line. Yes. And I watch vows as we finally hear them for the first time from John and Sam. I like that it opens, hear my words and bear witness to my vow, even though... We haven't heard about, like, legal witnesses to the Night's Watch vows. Like, th- th- there's not an order that, like, a notary has to be standing by while you say these. So, especially in the context here, I think that the people we're supposed to be listening are the gods. Yes. That you are, you are, you are saying your, your vows, vows, vows to the old gods, and they, they are the ones bearing witness. 
And then indeed, of course, Bran might check in on this moment at some point. We could we could see down the line as Bran is, is witnessing things through the, through the weird eyes. He might see this vision and literally bear witness to it. But then, of course, we get into night gathers, and now my watch begins. So that roots the night's watch in watching for and resisting the t- return of the long night. That the night in question in night's watch is the long night. Yes, and that's what they're 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 watching for. Not just the night that comes around at the end of every day, but the one that doesn't end. That's why that's why they exist. That's what the mission is about. And then it, it shall not end until my death. Ah, but the others can bring you back, of course. And you have that story about the 79 sentinels at the night fort being walled up in the ice, which implies kind of a watch lasting beyond death to some extent. And then, of course, that might be also foreshadowing of John, that oh, yeah. this might be his, his loophole for getting out of the night's watch. Is, it shall not end until my death. But after his death, eh, you're scot-free, kid. <laughs> Go be king in the north. Which, of course, gets into the next line, which is, I shall take no wife. Hold no lands, father no children. So we have this linking of two kinds of fertility, holding no lands and having no family. And you, you can't take part in any of these cycles of life. So you're, the Night's Watch is being cut off from the generational cycle to a certain extent. It's, it's out, out of that natural flow of nature. I shall wear no crowns and win no glory. So that specifically cuts the Night's Watch off from the Game of Thrones, which is something that's going to come up again when we get to Aemon Targaryen talking to John about how I didn't interfere when my family went down and right. other Night's Watch members have not interfered when their families were at war. We are we are cut off from all that. All, again, all these things that the Night's Watch are not taking part in, leaving open the question of what it is they're supposed to do, which is the next part, I shall live and die at my post. So that's that classic connection to like the Kingsguard or to you know the noble death of the samurai or all these kind of monastic warrior orders you can name both in fiction and real life this is the Night's Watch's kind of interpretation of that I shall live and die at my post yeah it's like the first general order right for most military organizations in the United States which is I will guard everything within the limits of my post and quit my post only when properly relieved it's all good stuff and I think really the the lines the past four lines read very strongly as related to John's future arc in terms mm-hmm. of should not end my death. John's death was likely conceived of from the beginning. Take no wife, hold no lands, father, no children. That's going to be kind of interesting when Daenerys shows up, right? Or, or when, sure. when no crowns, when no glory. Hmm. There's that certain will that we're going to be talking about for Rob Stark, come storm of swords where Rob is going Absolutely. to name John Snow as King of the North. So it, it kind of it, it's interesting, and I feel like that Martin wrote, in my opinion, and I know we're not we're all not quite through the, this yet, but it kind of feels like that Martin wrote the Night's Watch vows relating to John and all relating to John's coming and future struggles in in A Song of Ice and Fire. Hundred percent. Also, Sam with taking no wife and mm-hmm. fathering no children is something he's going to be struggling with, as you say, with Gilly. But yeah, obviously, John is one of the characters most associated with Azor High imagery, along with Daenerys and in a false sense, Stannis. And we get a direct direct connection to Lightbringer in the vows here. I am the sword in the darkness. Mm-hmm. Suggesting that the job of the Night's Watch and the job of Azor Ahai are intimately linked. And maybe one and the same. Maybe Azor Ahai founded the Night's Watch. Maybe the Night's Watch was founded to just do what Azor Ahai did. Maybe there's some connection to Night's King there. But there seems to be this direct lineage between the legend of Azor Ahai and the, the role of the Night's Watch. Yes. And then you get... Uh, I am the Watcher on the Walls, and there's a lot going on there. There's obviously some connection to Cold War era rhetoric. You see that in certain, certain Kennedy speeches and talks about the Berlin Wall, this image of being the Watchman on the Walls of World Freedom. And uh, I think you can see Martin alluding to the language that comes up around walls politically a lot mm-hmm. when, when you puts this line in there. Martin has talked specifically historically about the 
the wall as being something that predates anything A Song of Ice and Fire related and that he made a journey out to England in 1981, where he says, quote, I was in England visiting a friend and as we approached the border of England and Scotland, we stopped to see Hadrian's Wall. I stood up there and I tried to imagine what it would be like to be a Roman legionary standing on this wall looking at these distant hills. So, yes, absolutely, Martin is talking about Cold War era rhetoric here, but he's also going a little bit farther in history and talking about what it might be like to be this dude who's standing up on a wall looking north to Pickland or Scotland as it is as known right now and what might come from the north against you in the future. And as the Roman legionaries found out at various junctures in history that there was lots of bad things that were going to be, going to be coming south towards Hadrian's Wall at various points. And as John is going to be finding out, there will be lots of bad things coming south of the wall to coming south to the wall in order to overwhelm the wall and end all mortal life or to, in the case of Mance Raider, to try, to try and flee that force that is trying to end all mortal life. Absolutely. And to stand against that, you have the line, I am the fire that burns against the cold. Again, there's the connection to Azora High, who supposedly had his sword of fire, the red sword of heroes, Lightbringer up against the, the long night when it fell. And there's also the connection to tons of things we see throughout the story. Fire that burns against the cold, that could be Danny's dragons. It could also be Egret's hair, as hmm. is, is often described as being kissed by fire and kind of their John and Egret's relationship being this warm oasis in, in the, the coldness of the war and the literal coldness of winter. It's also, of course, a reference to R plus L equals J. Fire that burns against the cold speaks <laughs> to the kind of ice and fire connection in John's yeah. heritage. And that, of course, brings us to the title of the series. So, yeah, I am the fire that burns against the cold. That That's one that strongs out to, stands out to me as having like the most echoes across the series, for sure. 100%. And you have the light that brings the dawn. So that's really hitting the long <laughs> night slash Azora high imagery here, because that's exactly what... Lightbringer and the Zora High are supposed to do, as well as potentially referencing Dawn the Sword. Might hmm. might be a, an allusion to that being involved. Um, then then there's the horn that wakes the sleepers, which is an interesting line. That is, of course, carried out at the Fist of the First Men when the Army of the Dead attacks. Hmm. And those uh, the, those horns jump in uh, to warn the Night's Watch. There's connections here to Sam, who, of course, comes from Horn Hill. So it makes sense he'd be the horn that wakes the sleepers. And potentially to Euron, this is something we've talked about before, that Euron is connected to Dragonbinder, potentially the Horn of Winter as well, if that's the horn that uh, Sam is bringing south with him. So that, uh, those could certainly be horns that wick the sleepers to other extents mm. as well. And then finally we get the shield that guards the realms of men. And this is really the crux of the Night's Watch duties. That what, what their job is, is to protect the people of Westeros uh, from another long night, from another hideous, magical mass death at the hands of the others. And the, it's the definition of this line that John will seek to reshape as Lord Commander. So much of what he does in Dance with Dragons can be summed up, as he says, by saying that the wildlings belong to the realms of men, that they are included in the oaths, that there are not human beings you're allowed to cut off from, that, from those realms yes. that you're supposed to protect, that the wildlings are, in, are involved in that. And so, yeah, that, that, that's just a great capper. Like, that sums up everything that comes before it, I think, and really gets at what the Night's Watch oaths are ideally for. Yeah, I think the, the, what's fascinating about the Night's Watch Oath to me is how it works in tandem with Winter is Coming, and that mm-hmm. the Night's Watch Oath reads to me as historically developed in the Night's Watch as being something to keep the Night's Watch cognizant of their actual mission, which is to prevent the long night from falling on Westeros, from falling on all mortal life, to prevent the others from coming and destroying everything that the people of Westeros hold and and love dearly. But the Night's Watch has essentially forgotten what they're actually doing with their vows, even though it's it's codified in, in the in the vows itself. 
to kind of like bring it all back together, you know, winter is coming is, is the stark words, which, you know, are said over and over again by various characters in the story, various stark characters in the story, particularly that traditionally likely meant uh, to be a reminder to the Starks that winter as or death or the others are coming, be on the lookout, be aware. But that sort of, that sort of memory has been forgotten in the thousands of years since the others last came. So I think there's an interesting connection between winter is coming and the night's watch vows. And we, that we have two organizations that have forgotten what their words actually mean, even though they're nice words for the moment, but they're going to be, have a lot of more greater meaning as we're going to find out in the, almost like the, at the very end of this chapter, that there is something more that they need to be on the lookout for. Yeah, that's a great parallel. And yes, of course, I love that Ghost shows up the second John has committed to his duty, as if he was waiting for the second John sealed him, sealed his fate and joined the Night's Watch. Then Ghost comes up, trots up, carrying his pupper mouth, a vivid reminder of exactly what John has signed up for. Mm-hmm. It's just a great way to end the chapter, which transitioned just nicely to our foreshadowing mm-hmm. groundwork section for the episode. So yeah, Ghost finding a severed hand in the chapter right before the hand of the King Ned Stark goes on. Nah, nothing to see there. <laughs> no strong parallels whatsoever. No, none at all, none at all. We also have this line, I see Sir Alistair's bloody hand. That's all I see. Mm, kind yeah, of, good point. Kind of makes me think of Janos Slint foreshadowing, given that Janos takes the bloody hand as his sigil after he takes down Ned Stark in the very next chapter, and that Janos Slint was always intended to come to the wall. I'm not entirely sure whether that's something that Martin always had in mind, but it does work as foreshadowing, perhaps in retrospect, for Janice's fate. But yes, absolutely, all of this talk about the severed hand has zero to do with what's going to happen with Ned Stark in the very next chapter. Nothing at all. Not whatsoever. So, all the talk about the importance of being the Lord Commander's squire in this chapter and how John has to recognize that, all that does pay off in John's arc when Lord Commander Snow makes Satin his squire in a dance with dragons hmm. to over the, the protestations of his senior officers. So, consider that lesson learned. Yeah, and I think like it's really nice in a dance with dragons that all the senior officers are like, you can't do that. You realize that you're grooming him for command, so it does kind of confirm what Samuel was telling John back yes. in, in A Game of Thrones, which I think is really, really nice. And then we also have another really kind of more subtle callback to RLJ and our kind of R plus L equals J watch. If you guys remember when Ned was talking with Catelyn all the way back in the Game of Thrones, Catelyn 2, that John quote, has his blood. And that's all that she needed to know. Well, John here kind of makes a sort of similar statement in that he says that the blood of the first men flows in his veins, the blood of the Starks. So I think it's a more subtle potential callback to R plus L equals J in that John is only acknowledging that he's in that John is not saying that he's Ned Stark's son here. He's only saying that the blood of the first man flows in his veins, which it absolutely does via Lyanna, not Ned. Yes, I like that. That's uh, one of the subtler, subtler R plus L equals J foreshadowing bits for sure. But yeah, Martin does like playing with people phrasing it as John being Ned's blood. Right. So we, we also get Darion bemoaning his life on the wall in this chapter, which does set up his desertion down the road nicely in A Feast for Crows. Hmm. In all likelihood, as we've said before, it's one of those cases where Martin didn't have that exactly in mind at this point, but later on, when he decided he wants Sam to deal with a betrayal on his way to Old Town to add some drama, Darian was a convenient choice because of this pre-existing backstory that Martin had already set up, and that could be made to fit. After all, Darian isn't being framed as a recruiter at this point, but a food taster. <laughs> that changes under Lord Commander Snow, so my guess is that uh, Martin adapted this element to Darian's story later and just had this backstory handy for, for his attempt to do that. Yeah, and, and certainly we see in Darian his sense of it's kind of the same sort of mentality that John has in that he's upset. Uh, you, you, there's, it's a little bit subtle, a little more subtle than John's like outright 
anger and hostility of being named to the stewards. But Darian is like fair. What do you think is fair? I was I was I was a totally consensual sexual relationship I was having with Lord Rowan's daughter sort of thing, which Which, who knows about that. Right. Certainly. Certainly. He's yeah, a parallel to John and that anger in the moment. Yeah, I agree. And that's going to get a lot more a lot more pronounced when we get to Bravo. Oh, yeah. Finally, this is not the only time the ranger Dywin, who you praised earlier, will prove intuitive about the movements of the others. He s- smells the cold coming at the fist of the first men. Mm. So this is, on one level, of course, Martin honoring the well-worn trope of the veteran who sees it all coming. But he's also establishing this sort of collective unconsciousness among the Night's Watch about their true mission, that at some level they remember why they're here and it's not the wildlings. Yeah. I think you, you see also the, uh, the brothers who instinctively call for the unnatural corpses to be burned in John's next chapter. Yep. Yeah, and then we also that sort of same sort of trope of of Diamond being kind of the well worn veterans. You as you talked about, we see that in Garrett from the prologue, where he's telling Waymar yep. they need to GTFO from the haunted forest instead of going to track down the wildlings. And so, I, I do like that trope a lot, especially among the Night's Watchmen. Uh, Diamond, like I said, he's he's a great minor character. I just really enjoy him clacking his his wooden teeth all over the place. I think it's a really interesting and fun. Uh, touch that makes me go, oh, yeah, I could definitely see him with his, the kind of brown wooden teeth kind of clack, clack, clacking around. So, yeah, I, I love Diamond. I do love the fact that he's so intuitive about knowing when the others are coming. And he has a fantastic sense of smell, which is really good here and also really good at the Fist of the First Men, where he is the one who smells the others and the and the white, the others and the whites coming. Yeah, it's a nice little trait of Diamond's the wooden teeth to help you remember who he is and make him stand out from the Night's Watch. And, yeah, Garrett's another great example of that when he tells Waymar that fire is good against against some things and he doesn't quite <laughs> name what he's talking about because he doesn't want to at some level but yeah there's that that memory of the white walkers lurks in some level among the night's watch oh yeah speaking of speaking once more of the night's watch that finally takes us to our theory slash discussion section for the episode so with john joining the night's watch and elsia mormon making this impassioned case for the institution it behooves us to ask is the night's watch overall a good thing or is it in fact ugly and bad <laughs> Which might might seem like a simplistic question, but you know, is it is it worth having watchers on the walls when you have to create a penal colony to do it? It's it's as we alluded to earlier, that's something to wrestle with. Even if you have the Night's Watch with this overall noble social mission, the means are really not admirable a lot of the time. No, it's it's not necessarily admirable, but it may be necessary, and I think and I and I say that kind of haltingly, in that we were talking in before we went on we went live in this episode and that I I definitely feel, get the sense from this chapter and from all the preceding and chapters going onwards that are based around the, around the wall, that the North has essentially uh, subcontracted the defense of Westeros to the Night's Watch and that they don't have to keep a standing army fed and paid on the wall so they can they have the ability of having, in the best of all possible worlds, 10,000 soldiers there up, up at the wall. Though, of course, in this case here, it's less than a thousand. It's fewer than a thousand soldiers that are actually at the wall at this point. So it makes it incredibly tenuous when you have the real threat of Mance Raider coming down on the wall later on and the even greater threat of the others and all of the whites coming down on the wall, uh, which has not quite happened yet in the books. Now, uh, this is such a hard question, I feel like, because I see the necessity of having a defense of Westeros in hand, but I don't agree morally with the idea of having slave soldiers essentially defending the wall and defending Westeros there. I mean, I've, I've strong personal opinions against the uh, the draft as it stands right now, and against slave soldiers as 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 it stands as well. Um, most of these people here who are at the wall are not volunteers. I mean, you do have some volunteers like John, like Benjamin at some level, perhaps. 
like LC Mormon. But a lot of these guys, like Sam, Sam is at the wall because his father told him if he didn't go to the wall, he would be murdered. You've got other characters who are there because they're criminals. These there's there's not a there's not a, a choice, there's not a volunteerism that's involved here. So I do think that there is some moral ambiguity about the Night's Watch, which kind of gets overlooked in the fandom a bit, because they look at it as kind of like this noble calling. They kind of take Elsie Mormont's words at face value without kind of looking more in depth about what the actual consistency and the men of the Night's Watch are, what they were doing and how they're actually all forced to be there. And they're basically defending the wall. They're the, um, it's kind of like this, uh, this line that I heard in the army back in the day, which is we, the unwilling led by the unknowing are doing the impossible for the ungrateful. We have done so much for so long with so little, we are now qualified to do anything with nothing forever. Absolutely. There's that sense of kind of bitter absurdity that almost reminds me of stuff like Catch-22 and Vonnegut's books from the 60s and the 70s of getting at kind of the folly that goes into a lot of hierarchies like this and how you have to constantly do an impossible job with no resources and get no credit for it, as you say. There's definitely that being baked into this here, but obviously there has to be some kind of common defense, but the fact that it's taking this form, I think, does give me pause. And then you look at the long, bitter war against the wildlings, which, while you can certainly make the case of in the short term if we had to defend against wildling raiders, there's no sense of diplomatic outreach or integration going on at this point with the wildlings. That we, I don't think we get that sense from really any politician south of the wall. So there's really no long-term solution to keeping this population penned up north of the wall. And again, you can look at that as a case of correctable mission creep, that what the Night's Watch needs is someone like John to be in charge and recognize that and make take steps to reform it. But look what happened to John. So maybe this represents a fatal flaw in the institution. You know, I, I would like to think that the Night's Watch has to be reformed. I'm tempted to say that Westeros has to be reformed first, <laughs> that so much of what's wrong in the Night's Watch, as we've been saying in this episode, is just stuff that's kind of been ported in from the society of Westeros oh, yeah. and hasn't hasn't actually been washed out in the rinse, as G.R. Mormont would like to pretend. So maybe maybe that's what I'm suggesting is that really the Night's Watch can't be its best self until Westeros is, which may, might sound like a cop out, but I think might be the only real way to solve its problems. I agree, really. I mean, you can't really solve the issue of the Night's Watch until you actually resolve some of the social and class structures in Westeros as it stands. And we don't really see much in the way of reform of, of those structures yet. Now, I, I do think that John does a better job. And when he becomes the mm-hmm. Lord Commander of the Night's Watch of looking, of, of essentially attempting to integrate the wildlings into the defense of the wall and trying to bring all those who are actually living south of the wall and save them, even people who are ridiculously awful, like the Weeper. Uh, and that's that's good. That's that's good on, on John's part. And I also think it's good, too, that he doesn't have the wildlings who are coming south of the wall when he brings them south of the wall. This is different from what Stannis does, but... When that he doesn't have them swear to uphold the vows of the Night's Watch, he doesn't have them bend the knee to Stannis. But of course, Stannis has the wildlings that he brings south of the wall, and they all have to bend the knee and swear to to Relor to uphold Lore in order to gain passage south of the wall. So it, it's a total mixed bag, I think, for the Night's Watch. I think it's a much more ambiguous organization that people um, need to kind of cons- should consider a little bit more deeply and about the ethics of having essentially slave soldiers defending the realms of men. I think that there's a bit of moral ambiguity, if not moral wrongness in, in that part of the Night's Watch being a big part of it. But I, I, I don't know. It's just one of those things that were, yeah, that it's one of those things that ultimately I think the society as a whole has to be reformed. There has to be a sense, a, politi- a political and military sense in Westeros that we have a collective responsibility to defend the, the wall, to defend the realms of men, to defend the living. And that 
sense is not there, even among characters like Ned Stark. Characters, I mean, all the way back in Catelyn's very first chapter in A Game of Thrones, Ned Stark thinks that he might have to call the banners to go north of the wall to deal with the Mance Raider. There's no real sense that he has the feeling that he has to maintain a constant, that he himself has to have a garrison station at the wall, that he has to be looking out for the true threat of the others, which, again, understandable because the others have not been necessarily around for a few thousand years. But, yeah, the Night's Watch is a much more ambiguous organization than... Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is that the Night's Watch are underdogs. Yeah. So we're naturally, you know, inclined to root for them and sympathize with them and not be like, oh, this Black Brotherhood should be melted down entirely. But, (laughs) I mean, you think about that one person who mentions in Arya's Clash of King chapters about how his brother got sent to the wall for stealing pepper from his lord's table. Right. That's all the kid did, and now his life is over. And from that perspective, the Night's Watch isn't an underdog. It's just one of many institutions kind of pressing down on you. And like you say, allowing the nobles to work out these these advantages they have over you. So I think we, and of course, it looks that way to the wildlings too, that the Night's Watch are their oppressors and much, much more, you know, much more in command of things than they are, even if that doesn't necessarily feel like that to the Black Brothers themselves. Right. So yeah, I think we should consider, consider the Night's Watch from all angles. It's definitely something we're going to be doing a lot of going forward when we meet more wildling characters and we learn about their perspective. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that for sure. And I think that just about wraps us up for Game of Thrones John 6. It certainly does. So thanks everyone for listening and thank you for all of your support that you've been giving us either on Patreon or just simply your ears. It's really, we really appreciate it. Absolutely we do. And I want to particularly shout out our Kingsguard patrons over on patreon.com forward slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F these are patrons who give us $28 or more every month and we just wanted to give them a shout out and thank them so much for their support yeah. these would include Alicia Benton Captain Dusty Farts uh-huh. Dean Whittle Fanny the ladies over at Girls Gone Cannon Hipner, James R. Ward Sir Big Jim of the Oasis Menagerie Stannis Ish and Friend to Wolves and Lions <laughs> John Huffman, Lane Hickerson, Muramets, Patrick Dougherty, Peter Fridman, Sir Philip the Fool, and Zena Valerian. We just wanted to give you guys a special bit of thank you this episode. We really appreciate the, your d- dedication to what we're putting out. We hope you like the product, and we hope to hear more from you as we continue to make it better for you. Yeah, and those who are interested are always welcome to become Kingsguard. We will shout you guys every once in a while. We really appreciate your support, and we really appreciate the support of everyone, for that matter. And... Uh, love the fact that we have a great community that we have we're establishing over on Patreon as well as over on Twitter and Facebook and various forms of social media here so we, we thank you very much as always you are welcome to rate and review us on iTunes Google Play Podbean SoundCloud anywhere and everywhere you listen to your podcast we would love to hear from you guys there as always our, our Patreon can be found at patreon.com forward slash notacast ASOIF where we'll be releasing our final episode about Fire and Blood Volume 1 which is all about the Regency period of Aegon Third, and that'll be coming your way on January 31st for all $5 above patrons and a few days before that for our Kingsguard and our small council and you can find us on social media at notacast ASOF and our email at notacast ASOF at gmail.com Personally speaking, you find me at Brennan B. Fish, Brennan B. Fish on Reddit, and my website is Wars of Politics, You can find me at Port Quentin on Twitter or at portquentin.tumblr.com. So join us next time as uh, Ned Stark, Lord of Winterfell, Hand of the King, Father to the Fandom, goes down swinging in Eddard 14. Oh my gosh, Marty. Moment. Marty crying. Exactly. It's going to be a very emotional time. So. Join, join us there. So yes, join us next time for Eddard 14, where we will definitely not be crying as Eddard Stark, of course, comes out winning. In the, he's not going to come out winning, is he? Is he? He's not going to. He's not going to make it. Is he? Oh boy, we'll see. We'll see if we'll see if we can make it through next week, folks. So <sighs> tune 
tune into our collapse and thanks as always for listening yes thanks as always and see you guys next time